That's right, live from the NASDAQ market side overlooking New York's famous Times Square. This is Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, in for Melissa Lee, and your traders on the desk tonight are Tim Seymour, Chris Verone, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami. We're also joined by Mike Wilson, there he is. Morgan Stanley's chief equity strategist. We call this show Six Men in Ties. All right, tonight on Fast Money, stocks surge on news of a big trade breakthrough with China. The S&P and NASDAQ hitting new all-time highs. But why wasn't there more of a positive reaction to something we've been waiting on for a long time? Plus, the chips are up. Semi-steaming to new records, but is there any value left for your hard-earned dollars? And this is big. Could Facebook be broken up by the government? Shares down on the new threat of government action. All that ahead. But we begin with the headline that sent stocks to new records. The United States and China have agreed, at least in principle, to phase one of a trade deal. Kayla Tausch, she's been live at the White House all day, breaking news all day long, and she joins us now with the late breaking details. Kayla. Brian, we're waiting official word from the White House and the U.S. Trade Representative on a limited agreement between the U.S. and China that would see tariffs on Sunday uh, delayed or canceled and would potentially roll back some earlier tariffs or cut the tariff levels from previous rounds. The Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg are both reporting that President Trump has signed off on this agreement that was presented to him by his top trade and economic advisors earlier today. The meeting that the president held was for roughly an hour in the Oval Office, and at one point he was joined by CEOs of major multinational companies, Cummins, Union Pacific, and Stanley Black & Decker, as well as the leader of the Business Roundtable, the influential corporate lobbying group uh, that has been advocating for uh, uh, potentially some breakthroughs with China that would see some of these tariffs that are so costly to those companies I just mentioned being rolled back. So as I mentioned, Brian, we are still awaiting official word. Um, so I don't want to go out on a limb too far and say exactly what's in this deal, because at this point we don't know. But going into that meeting, there was an expectation that uh, Beijing would be signing off on this deal potentially as soon as tomorrow and that the ambassador here in Washington uh, would formalize that agreement in some way. That would be what is different about this deal this time around compared to previous times that the president has announced that there had been a detente. Yeah, this time the deal would actually be a deal. Kayla Tausche, thank you very much. All right. So let's take a look at how the market reacted to all of today's tread headlines. Stocks surging at the open after the president tweeted close. We're close to a big deal with China. Then we got a little complacent or maybe skeptical. The markets faded some midday. Then the news broke that Kayla just told you about. And boom, new highs. So Mike Wilson, by the way, welcome. Does today's trade news change your outlook <laughs> at all heading into the new year? No, I mean, this is part of our outlook for 2020 is that we need this actually for the global economy to bottom in the first quarter, which is our call from our economists. I think what this really does is it, it adds fuel to the fire of the rotation we've been seeing. And we saw it more of that today where the cyclicals are kind of out, you know, outperforming the defenses. Obviously, yields are now trying to break out. Um, I'm not sure yet we're at that stage yet. Here's the risk of the deal, right? Obviously, markets top on good news, they bottom on bad news. This has been going on for a while. We finally have good news, and that's good. I think that helps the recovery next year. The question is how much has been priced. And I think the other Apparently was, all of it. Well, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I think in some insecurities, it clearly has. I mean, obviously, you'd have to live under a rock not to know this deal was coming. Okay, so it's here, and it's good that we got it done. Now, the risk on the other side is, was there pull-forward demand in front of Sunday's threat of tariffs? And if there is, then we could have a little bit of an air pocket in the first quarter. I don't think it'll be material enough to derail the economy, but it could derail some of these, you know, some of these more 
cyclical stocks that have had a big move, we're hedged. We have financials and we're also overweight staples and sort of an overweight. And we have our cyclical exposure actually outside the U.S. We've been overweight Japan and Europe because that's a cheaper way to get cyclical exposure to trade. And by the way, both of those economies are much more levered to trade anyways. Does this material, by the way, label me the person that was living under a rock. And <laughs> this was basically the same deal, I think, that they announced on October 11th, 200 or so S&P points. Again. And I've said this, and I'll say it again. President Trump has done a masterful job of speaking to the market through Twitter, through his words. Good for him. With that said, does this materially change the earnings forecast for 2020. No, and that's and that's the thing, and and it doesn't change our economic forecast, and it doesn't change our earnings forecast materially for the S and P 500. It does change it potentially for some of the economies geared towards global trade, potentially, say Japan, maybe Germany, maybe South Korea, some of the areas that have been actually hurt by trade more materially, and maybe some of the more cyclical areas that we could see a pickup in demand. But once again, though, Guy, I do think there's been some pull forward in certain areas, semiconductors being probably the most obvious one where there's been pull forward to demand because that's an area that was going to get tariffed on Sunday. If that's no longer going to happen, we may see a little bit of a, of a, of a pullback in some of those orders. What, what, to, uh, what if we get part of this deal where they reduce, they roll back some of the existing tariffs? Yeah. Would that increase your S&P earnings estimate for next year? It could, year? potentially, absolutely. That's not in our base case forecast. We don't know the answer to that yet. I think that's probably for phase two, and we don't know the timing of phase two yet. Our, our public policy strategist thinks that phase two could be something after the election. That may take a while longer to get those rollbacks. We'll see. This has been a, you know, it's a fast-moving situation in terms, not in terms of getting it done. I, I, it's been taking a long time, but it's fast-moving in terms of it's flip-flopping back and forth. What is actually in the deal? What's going to get papered? What's going to be agreed to by handshake? There's a long road here, and I agree with you guys. The president's been masterful in using a phase one, talking to the market, seeing the reaction, and using it to his advantage. Especially when this deal is, looks like it's mostly about ag and not about IP and IT, which are the reasons we are supposedly doing this deal. But you talked about, I, I thought one of the most extraordinary moves today was in rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that you're also continuing to see this uplift in anything that's a reflation trade. Yep. Um, so the rotation into resources, into commodities, is this something that continues? These are, these are great looking charts. Yeah, look, I mean, we're, we're overweight value as well relative to growth. I mean, we think that's the, we think that's the real value added idea, meaning the growth stocks have benefited tremendously from this sort of you know, shallow recovery, fear about trade, et cetera, and they got overvalued, and, if, and lower rates is part of that. So lower uh, rates moving up is damaging to those stocks. That money's got to move somewhere. I think financials is the first place. Banks outperform. And then potentially energy and potentially materials. And we have, we have started to see some of the commodity prices themselves have a bit of a move in the last week. So that's all related to the same thing. Mike, when you look at the deep cyclicals, whether it's European <laughs> autos, whether it's copper, whether it's Hong Kong, I mean, these have now been turning for three or four months. That's right. So wasn't it already in the charts that something here was going to have a positive outcome? Absolutely. And it's a combination of a lot of things. Trade is part of it. But also was those stocks got priced for recession, right? That's, yep. that's what August was. August was the cyclicals being totally thrown out the door, it, pricing in a recession. So they've been recovering for a lot of reasons. Part of that is that we avoided a recession for now, right? And trade is another boost to that. I also think what's going on in the election in, in the Great Britain is a big deal. Right. So that has made progress as well. We don't know the results yet. They're coming out shortly. But that could be a real positive for potential fiscal stimulus, which is another catalyst for these cyclical areas. Yeah, well, and by the way, Dan, I don't want you to get in here. But, the, but to that effect, we're going to get to more on the on the British vote. But when at the top of the show, when I was looking down, there were some headlines crossing that it looks like 
Boris Johnson may be able to keep that conservative majority. So we'll get more on that in a second. Sorry about that, Dan. No, no, no problem. So interesting point about the reflation trade. And the last time we really thought about this was 2018. It came after that big jobs, uh, excuse me, the big tax cut in late 2017. We saw rates go back up, right? So what did we see this year? We saw rates go down in front of what was three consecutive rate cuts by the FOMC. So here's the thing. Is 2020 going to be a lot like 2018? The stock market was very volatile. We had rates going up because people felt better about global growth, that sort of thing. But it was a volatile year, and we had that big sell-off from the Jan highs to the February lows. It took, what, seven, eight, nine months to get back to those prior highs. Does 2020 set up potentially like that if we pulled forward a lot of the market performance because of this anticipated news? I think there's one big difference, Dan, which is that in 18, the U.S. was leading the economic expansion because we had the fiscal stimulus. Now it's the global economy that's actually bottoming. Okay? And part of that is because they went into a slowdown first. They're more affected by the trade. Quite frankly, the U.S. economy is more closed. And I would argue that the U.S. economy is actually going to bottom later than the, the global economy, which may actually keep downward pressure on U.S. rates. Okay? How is that possible when we started reinflating before everybody else? Why is our life cycle going to be that much longer and stronger. Because we pull forward a lot of demand, Brian. We, we did a fiscal stimulus that was gargantuan in 2017 that fed through 18. And, what, and then what that, uh, well, one of the things that's done is created cost pressures <clears throat> for companies. So our call this year, the part of our call that was really right was that we had an earnings recession and we didn't have any earnings growth this year as well. And the small mid-caps are really suffering. The trade deal does not alleviate that pressure. That's unique to the United States, and it may keep downward pressure on Treasury rates. So we're actually long Treasuries because that's a hedge against our cyclical bet. Right? We're not going all in on kind of a reflation trade yet. Think about what the Fed, though, has done. And today, you could also make an argument, Fed announces $365 billion in term repos between now and into next year. That, that, that balance sheet dynamic may be more important than anything. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, we wrote about that a lot this week. And we think the single biggest factor in the reflation trade is that the, the Fed, first of all, they ended QT. Okay, they ended QT and they cut rates three times and they're doing 60 billion a month plus overnight repo operations. If you look at the year over year rate of change on the Fed balance sheet, it bottomed in August and it's literally gone vertical. Mm-hmm. So the, the way that that transmits into the equity market is through vol. So S&P 500 30 day realized vol is at six. Okay, that's what does that un- mean? That's it's unnatural. All, it's that's a lot unnatural. Of so six on a, on a hundred year basis is in the, the point half of one percentile. It's, it's literally off. The, it's it's as low as you could see. Okay, and we wrote about this extensively last week because we think it's attracted a lot of CTA flows yep. and vol targeting flows to the tune of about 175 billion in the global equities just over the last two months. So that's a look. I mean, I think that that is a conversation that people talk they talk about this the fed balance sheet but they haven't quantified it we tried to quantify it and look it's going to persist it's going to persist through year to end for sure and probably into the first quarter Mike, i'm glad oh, i'm sorry chris Go ahead. i think what you're describing is an environment that's still driven by liquidity here and i think we need to remember 10-year yields are 150 basis points where they low 12 months ago right, right. so that is still very stimulative money growth running 10 percent annualized so when you think about that is that more bullish for rest of world in 2020 than it is domestically we think it is that's how we're yeah. positioned we we think look if you're pro cyclical you're you think growth is going to get better play the higher beta areas right the, the s&p 500 has been outperformed because people have been nervous it's the defensive equity market doesn't mean it goes down just under I know. We're, we're getting to we're going to get to villa marks in just a second in, in the uk but i think guy you've been talking about this repo thing how can I, no, I'm how, glad how can we it up. not have this $300 billion-plus repo thing in two days, the day before and the day after New Year's, and it not be a major dent in the equity market? 
I don't, I don't know the, I wish I knew the answer. Nobody, nobody, there are a few people paying attention, you being one of them. I think all, all of us on this desk have tried to talk about it. I think the Fed clearly sees some problem child out there that they're trying to deal with through this overnight repo rate that started on September 17th, I think, or thereabouts, when the rate spiked, spiked to 10%. What's going on? Is that, the, is that the sort of the boogeyman out there, that there's some distressed bank that they're trying to carry through for as long as they possibly can? Or am I just sort of reaching here? Well, look, the consensus view, and we would share this view, is that we had a drain on reserves. The Treasury had to raise a bunch of money to pay for the fiscal deficit. That was about $300 billion of fundraising. And uh, the Fed underestimated how much excess reserves they needed in the, in their, in their overnight, in the, uh, in the banking system at $1.2 trillion. Actually, it was, it was actually, they thought it would be $800 billion. So they missed that mark by $400 billion. And, and obviously, the markets reacted to that. There was also corporate tax payments that had to be made in the third quarter. That's the common belief, okay? Now, they've been plugging this hole for a while, and right. it hasn't been resolved yet. We think seasonally, this is the time of year when banks need more liquidity. So I think it's okay that this is persisting through year end. If we see this persist after year end, then I think we got a bigger problem. Well, something to watch. Mike Wilson, a really smart segment. Really appreciate that. Right, thank you. Take care. All right, well, the trade deal is not the only big global macro news to note. Don't forget about what we just talked about, the U.K. elections and polls there closing moments ago. Brexit potentially on the line, voters heading to the polls, but the results looking pretty good for the guy in office. Villa Marks live in London with more. Villa. That's right. We just had the first exit poll a few moments ago, Brian, after polls closed here across the U.K., and it looks like the Conservative Party, led by Boris Johnson, will gain around 50 seats compared to what they had in the previous parliament. That will, in theory, give him a very workable majority when it comes to trying to get his withdrawal agreement with the EU passed through the building behind me once this fresh parliament takes its seat. However, the chairman of that party saying just a moment ago that these numbers should be taken with caution. A spokesperson for the opposition Labour Party saying it's still far too early to call these results. I would say, though, that this same exit poll two years ago, the 2017 general election here, very, very accurate. 2015, it got the right result, although not quite the right numbers. So just to give you a sense of the context for these numbers, we're seeing 368 seats projected on this exit poll for the Conservative Party, just 191 for their next major opposition. 326 is the magic number that gives you a guaranteed majority, Brian. And Willem, you may have said this, so I apologize. We're looking at that big move in the British pound, which, by the way, is up 2% against the U.S. dollar, so pound sterling, a big move. According to the Financial Times, this would be the biggest win by the Conservative Party since Margaret Thatcher's 1987 election. They have not had a very strong majority for the last nine years. They've been in office for nine years, but they've not had a very strong majority. It's made it very difficult, as you and I have known for the last couple of years, for them to get a lot of things done under Theresa May, under Boris Johnson. There was always efforts by the parliament behind me to stymie the government's attempts specifically on Brexit. And this majority, if those numbers hold true, once we start getting the actual constituency vote numbers through, it will be much, much, much easier for Boris Johnson to pursue the kind of Brexit he wants to pursue. And from the market perspective, of course, that's all about certainty. It allows people to see January 31st, a date for the UK to leave the EU, and the uncertainty we've seen over the last few months, in theory, would be taken off the table. All right, Villa Marks, wow, what a big day, a big night there in the UK. Villa Marks, staying late, we appreciate it. And again, you can see that big move in the British pound sterling up about 2%, uh, 2.3% 
against the U.S. dollar, its highest level since June of 2018. Aside, maybe, Tim Seymour, from a currency trade, any other way to play this result? A stunning victory for the conservatives. I I think there is. And, and of course, there's great ironies in that the pound is rallying because the conservatives could really force a hard Brexit. This is not supposed to be pound positive on some level. But Maybe was everybody net short and this was some kind of a... Well, there may be that. But remember, folks, in terms of the pound, it's a risk-on currency. So when, when I see the pound running, to me, that's a very good sign for global growth. Whether that is really what's happening, it's certainly from the markets and a risk-on perspective, something we've seen many times. We're back to May of 2018 in terms of this breakout. Through 136 on the pound, I'm just looking at it, is, is where you would have a major breakout. Um, and right now, this is certainly very good for... It's consistent with all the other risk-on today. So think about this for a second from a different vantage point. The, the British pound, an extraordinarily developed economy, correct? Just moved... in a matter of minutes. In terms of a broader market, the Dow Jones, for example, that's more than a 600-point move in the Dow, which if that happened, we'd be talking about the entire show. I don't think, my opinion, I don't think currencies should move that way, especially developed market currencies, and I don't think the U.S. 10-year rate should go from 3.25% to 145 to 180 to 150 to 190. central banks do. And Unless, and tra- politics, when I, when I mentioned I, the possibility of a huge net short position, Chris, you were nodding. Absolutely. I mean, you have had people short sterling for two years here. That is just beginning to get unwound. If you and look, they just got punched in the face. And look at sterling versus euro. That's where the huge move is right yep. now. So yep. this hard Brexit is less about the U.K. It's more about the European Union. And I think the currency market is telling you that today. Yeah, I'm looking at what's the yeah. percentage move on uh, the pound euro. We'll probably show that a bit later on in the show. Either way, stunning results for the conservatives. Biggest conservative majority, according to the FT, since Thatcher's 1987 victory. Wow, we'll get more on that and the reaction in a bit. Coming up, another big story. Facebook under fire. Mm. The big antitrust headline that sent the stock tumbling today. Plus, we're all over tonight's after-hours action. Adobe, Broadcom, Costco, all on the move. There's a lot going on. Trade, Brexit, currency moves, after-hour stocks. We're going to break it all down live here from the New York Times Square and the NASDAQ market site. More Fast Money right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. This is a big story on one of the world's biggest companies. Facebook shares down nearly 3% today. It's on reports that the FTC is raising new antitrust concerns against the company. So is the specter of a breakup of Facebook looming larger now? Julia Borston is live in our L.A. newsroom with more. Julia. Well, it might be, Brian. You see that stock chart. Well, Facebook shares took that turn lower when a Wall Street Journal report came out saying that the FTC is considering seeking an injunction against Facebook as soon as next month. The FTC considering looking to block how Facebook integrates its apps, including WhatsApp, Messenger and Instagram, because that integration could make it harder to split up the company in an antitrust case. We reached out to the FTC and Facebook. They both said no comment on this report. Now, to put this report in context, as part of its antitrust inquiry into Facebook, the FTC has been examining the social platform's acquisitions, such as WhatsApp and Instagram, to understand if they were aimed at snapping up potential rivals and crushing competition. Mark Zuckerberg has said that it is a top priority to integrate Facebook's messaging apps to enable its users to communicate more easily and securely with end-to-end encryption across its various platforms. The report saying that an injunction could look to bar Facebook from its plan to integrate the apps 
which of course would make it harder to split up the company in antitrust case. E-marketers saying, quote, it's important to note that there is already a great deal of back-end integration between Facebook's properties when it comes to advertising. As a result, Facebook has been able to grow its ad revenue significantly. Now, for this to all come to pass, the FTC would need a majority of its five members to seek an injunction and then would need to file suit in federal court to obtain one. Brian, it will be a definitely a big story to watch. This is a big story to watch. Julia Borson, we appreciate you bringing it to us. Thank you very much. I'm sure a lot more tomorrow. But Chris Verone, let's talk about right now. Would you buy Facebook here? I'm a buyer of the stock here. Listen, I think you've been in this. On any weakness, you'd be a buyer. On any weakness. When the government is sniffing around, possibly breaking it up. What's remarkable, though, is these have been the headlines all year, and the stock has been remarkably resilient in light of that. I think this adds, I think this, to to quote Mr. Ron Burgundy, takes it up a notch. I think (laughs) the difference here is four or five times this year, you've had a good correction in Facebook. Every single time, it finds support near the 200. 190, 192, you get it down there, I think you have to be a buyer of the stock. And if you look at it as part of the FANGs, it's actually the cheapest as part of the FANGs right now. It's the lowest P.E. among it, the FANG stocks. But, but it, and so there's no disputing the charts. Everything you say I agree with. Um, there's a reason why Facebook's cheaper. There's a reason. I mean, you know, pe- people put management teams at a premium. They put multiples for companies that have management they trust, they believe in, they think is innovative at a premium. Um, Facebook's traded at a discount to FANG for a long time, and I think it will continue to. Um, look, the argument is that they will not be able to... To, uh, the, the, the DOJ, the FTC are very concerned about antitrust, especially as they, they mesh these apps together. And then it will be more difficult to break it apart when, in fact, it sounds like they really want to do. We've been saying, or some people have been saying, I certainly at least believe that breaking up Facebook into the parts, some of the parts, is a way to unlock value. Also probably a positive on the margins for the company. Listen, again, I say it all the time. I've been... I think some of the parts, that could be a situation where, I'm just throwing it out there, I think there's some people agree with that, some people disagree. With that said, over the summer, technically we talked about this, the stock did everything it needed to do to make the run towards the, I think it was July 2018 high of 211 and change, and we talked about that. It concerns me that we pushed up to 203 and it seemingly, at least for the day, have failed. I would be concerned on the back of that. Remember how quickly that summer the stock went from basically 210 to 140 in a straight line. Not suggesting that's the move we're going to see, but you've seen the stock move in a violent way to the downside before. It's funny. This is a tough trade. It's really, I think this is different. This is a piece of news that if you look back to 20 years ago when the government set its sight on Microsoft, they started with a sequence of events like this. They were really worried about this thing being too big and too hard to break up. And I'll just make one point. You know, we went into 2019 on this stock. The headlines were very different. It was about how is user data uh, being... Analytical. Uh, that was a fine... I agree. Stuff, it was a different okay? and, box. And, and investors got comfortable with the fact that they're going to grow their sales from $55 billion to $70 billion this year. But earnings are going to be flat year over year because they're going to do all that stuff to secure your data, to secure the platform against you know, malevolent actors and all that sort of stuff. What I think they did pretty stealthily this year is also added in a whole heck of a lot of spend on the interoperability of these different platforms to do exactly what the FTC is worried about right now is kind of what does it take to break this thing up? And I think they've accelerated some of that. So to but- me, I think it makes it much harder, and they probably did it in a stealthy way when they knew they had to spend. To the be, stock to, looks really cheap, though, and it's a hard one to say, sell just on normal fundamentals. Yeah, and I, I mean, the headline's terrible, and they couldn't even close the stock on the lows today. You gave back six or seven days of gains. Who cares? Right? Well, to to Mr. Guy Domi's point, what did they pay for Instagram? Well, I think it was billion. Three, three, three billion? One. One, one billion? What would Instagram be worth today as a standalone company? Well, people think it's 100 billion? People think it's 200 billion? 
Seriously. I don't know I'm if not it's kidding. $200 billion, but it's more. clearly it's more than what they paid point, for. It, so I Guy Adami, it's a $700 what, billion market cap company broken up. You think it could be a, a trillion-dollar company? I don't know about a trillion, but we, you know, I, I remember when WhatsApp came out, I'd never heard of it because, okay, boomer. But Dan Nathan was spot on. That was what, Dan? I, <laughs> 20 I think billion. it was a $20 billion deal. But think about what that metric would be now. So, again, that's why on the sum of the parts, you can make a pretty yes. cogent bull case for Facebook. There you go. It's a big story, too. So I see a banner in CBC. What's happening now? All right. Wow. We got much more coming your way here on Fast Money. Here's what's on deck. A slew of big tech stocks posting results in the last hour. The desk breaks down those numbers. Plus, Netflix versus Disney. Amazon versus Alibaba. How you can play those names against each other to make a profit. All that and more when Fast Money returns. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Why are we running that breaking news animation? Because... If you're just joining us, there's big news out of the United Kingdom. The British pound hitting its highest level since June of 2018. That's not the news. That's the reaction. The news is this. Exit polls there. Remember, they got a national election showing the Conservative Party is not only set to win the U.K. election with a clear majority, but an overwhelming majority so large, in fact, that the Financial Times out with the headline that it looks like the Conservatives guys could win a biggest majority in U.K. Parliament or at least an overwhelming victory in the election since Margaret Thatcher's team did it in 1987. It's not just pound-dollar that's moving. We're also seeing the euro absolutely get just crushed against the pound. Remember, that's inverted. So the pound up against the euro, pound up against the U.S. dollar. Chris Verone, I'm not a big currency guy. I know they matter. It's a huge market. What's the outcome of that? This is a two- or three-finger move in 10 minutes. It's one of the biggest moves we've seen in Sterling in some time. I think it speaks to how short the street has been Sterling for the last two or three years. And I also think the fact that Sterling versus Euro is moving to the extent that it is, this is less about the U.K. This there is a trade here, though. We make money on this. Long Sterling, there's more shorts to cover. Long Sterling, more shorts to cover. I love you. Just lay that boom. All right, moving on. Earnings alerts on two technology titans, Oracle and Broadcom. They are both on the move. They're reporting their numbers. We've got full team coverage to break down both these names. Seema Modi is breaking down Broadcom. But let us begin with Josh Lipton out west with more on Oracle's quarter. Josh. So, Brian, um, in terms of a quick take from the street, I caught up with Patrick Wall Ravens from JMP Securities. Listen, for his bottom line is investors really want to see uh, sustained growth from Larry Ellison's company, and they did not get it here. He says database business grew 1%. That was a miss. And apps business, uh, Patrick pointing out, grew 4%. That was just in line with expectations. Uh, CEO Safra Katz is on the call here talking about the quarter. She calls it a solid quarter. Our product strategy is right, she says. She expects revenue growth rates to increase. You will see us expand margins and grow EPS double digits for the foreseeable future. She also just gave guidance. Let me bring that to you. Q3 revenue is expected to grow uh, between 1% and 3%. Non-GAAP EPS to grow between 9 and 11%, so between 95 and $0.97. Cents. For fiscal 2020, uh, Safra Kat saying she expects that in constant currency, total revenue will grow faster than last year. We will report double-digit EPS growth for the year, she says. Larry Ellison is on the call as well. He's talking rivals. Um, Calling out SAP in particular, he says they have old technology and that their customer base, in his words, is up for grabs. And finally, Brian, I just want to end here on Adobe, bring you those results, too. Remember that stock? Up 35% year-to-date heading into the print. They reported 229 on revenue of $2.99 billion. That was a beat on the bottom and the top. Guys, back to you. 
All right, Josh Lipton. Josh, thank you very much. Here, anybody got a strong point of view on Oracle? Well, Oracle, quickly. I mean, they missed. I mean, it's just put it out there. I mean, it's a it, it, EPS basically a miss. Revenue basically a miss. They're talking about two percent revenue growth. That's not all that interesting. They can talk about non-gap EPS growth as much as they want. It's non-gap EPS growth, which we all know can be somewhat orchestrated. The stock is relatively inexpensive, but it's been meandering at this 55 level seemingly forever. I I think the issue with Oracle is the Oracle cloud infrastructure is something that, you know, it's growing slowly. The only people are using it are Oracle customers. They're not really able to break into into the status quo enterprise. And I think, uh, as Guy said, this stock kind of reflects that because the valuation isn't difficult relative to itself. Um, I think it's it's truly a question. They are still a database company and the biggest threat to legacy databases. I love how Oracle is going after SAP. They might want to go after blockchain because blockchain and the ledger may be the greatest threat to legacy databases than some other competitor that does the same thing that you do. And I wonder if investors have been watching blockchain's growth and just sitting on Oracle and saying it's not worth the money at whatever valuation. I think when we look at the market's interpretation of this, right, you have the S&P at a new high almost every day. This stock hasn't made a new high in six months, right? So right there, there's a message that, hey, the market's not impressed with these results. I think 54 is the key level if you're long. Under 54, this risks a larger problem starting to develop. Okay, good stuff. So let us switch gears now to the big semiconductor stock moving after hours. Seema Modi back at CNBC HQ with more on Broadcom. Seema. Hey, Brian, and an updated, uh, an upbeat sales forecast, not enough to lift the stock, but Broadcom is betting that 5G will boost demand for its chips in 2020. The company says in 5G cellular infrastructure, we are leveraging our Ethernet technology to bring the network to the edge. Now, CEO Hawk Tan acknowledged that it has been a tough year for semiconductors in general, but he says Broadcom's core business is holding up reasonably well and that its ability to grow inorganically through acquisitions of CA Technologies, Brocade, and Symantec has helped the company diversify and expand its business. Now, we are looking at shares of Broadcom turning lower here in after hours by as much as 1%, and it has underperformed the broader semiconductor index this year. It's up 28% versus the ETF, which is up about 60%. Analysts are currently asking questions right now on their earnings call, and we do expect, Brian, its relationship with Chinese telecom player Huawei, which until recently was a key customer to Broadcom, to uh, come up. So we'll be on that call. Any details we will come back on with you, Brian. All right, we'll look forward to that. Seema Modi, thank you very much. So, semiconductors as a group have been red hot. The SMH ETF has investors shaking their heads if they didn't buy it a few months ago. So just how high can the chips rip? Tribeca Trade Group CEO Christian Fromhertz is over at the Plasma to break down the action. Christian, what are you seeing out there in semis? Thanks, Brian. And we're definitely seeing some risk on markets. And I think Overall, when the market is moving higher, we want to see the semis break out. And that's exactly what we, ha- we have going on here. And so first, I want to look at the technicals in the SMH ETF. And one of the th- patterns that I really like is when we see consolidation in an uptrend. So we have that in a couple of different places here in the semi ETF. One right here, and then a move higher. And then secondly, just recently, what we're seeing is a little bit of consolidation in that break higher, which is really a nice thing that, that we want to see. And then secondly, what I like to do is look for two different things when we're looking at uh, trading. There's two C's. One is confirmation. So we're looking at SMH over the Qs. So we're looking at how the sector performs within the overall market. And you can see here we've got the same thing going on here. We've got a little bit of a dip, and we've got some now some nice real, real nice relative strength that's going on in the semiconductors versus the overall market. 
So a great way to kind of play this group and, and what we've been seeing the last couple of days. Uh, on Friday, we saw applied materials, a lot of big option activity. Yesterday, Taiwan Semi was another name that has been breaking out to new highs. Now we're seeing a lot of option activity in AMD. And I think this is a great name to play for momentum. It's got not, a little bit over 9% short interest. And in the technicals, we've got the same thing going on here. We've got a little bit of consolidation and a break higher. And then, and then we also have a little bit more of the consolidation, and it looks like we're, we're breaking higher again. So that's the first C, right? We've, we've got the, the confirmation. And second of all, we're seeing two times average call volume, right, which is, which is the conviction uh, that we want to see as well when, when we're playing a name within a group. And I think one, uh, one trade in particular caught my eye today. Right out of the gate today, we saw some momentum in AMD and a nice size trade. So they're going after February here, right, which gives us a little bit more time in the trade. And they're going out and they're spending $345. Um, when you do the math here, you get $2.4 million. That's a really nice size trade and a really good indication that someone is looking for AMD to push higher and push to new highs. So I think this is a great way, Brian, to go ahead and exploit the move in the semiconductor space. Well, all right, great stuff, Chris. Christian Farmers. Christian, thank you very much. All right, Dan, what's your take on AMD? Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. Listen, if you're in this trade, if you're in the semi-trade and you're looking for the names that are most levered, let's say, to the continuation of this momentum, AMD is clearly one of them. But it is up 50% in the last two months. So the idea of continuing to play that into the new year, defining your risk with calls, makes perfect sense. I just want to go back to one of the things that Mike Wilson said at the top of the show. If there was ever a group that might have seen some double ordering and inventory build into these potential tariffs... It's these guys, but the idea of defining your risk into the new year, into Q4 earnings season, which will really start for the semis in mid-January, makes sense to me. All right, good stuff. For more options action, you can always tune into our live show. Mm. That is tomorrow night, by the way, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. It's already Friday. Amazing. Tim, coming up right now, he may not be Santa. No, I'm not. No, not you, but he's got presents. It's Chris Farone, the man (laughs) sitting next to you, and he's going to unwrap his latest pair of trades heading into the new year. More Fast Money right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. You all know the song, right? It's Christmas season. To honor that season, we can't give you a partridge or a pear tree, but we can give you a pear trade. Mm. Chris Verone is over at the plaza with a little holiday wish or something. Go ahead, Chris. We're going to talk about two pairs we like a lot for 2020. We'll start on the short side. Uh, We have Amazon, obviously very important name, biggest weight in discretionary. I think it's lost on a lot of people. This stock hasn't made a new high in 330 trading days. It's the longest it's gone without a new high in the last 10 years. So it's really been dead money here. It is just hanging on vulnerably below now a flat 200-day moving average. I think if you start to see this break, that 1720 level, the stock trade 1760 today, below 1720, I think it reinforces the short case. But what do we want to pair it against? I think we want to pair it against its competitor on the other side of the world. This is Alibaba, which is the exact opposite picture, much like we saw in 2015 when this started to bottom and turn up as cyclicality reemerged around the world. We're seeing a very similar chart right here. I like the fact that the 50 and 200 are now upward sloping. I like the fact this has really reemerged as a global cyclical leader. So what does it look like if we pair them? This is your P&L if you're long BABA, short Amazon. So to make sense of this, 
Alibaba's underperformed for the better part of the last two years. That has started to change pretty meaningfully over the last 12 months. We think that continues into next year. The other pair that I want to talk about, very similar, another name, Netflix, which has just not participated in this move this year. It peaked about a year ago, made a lower high this summer, still stuck below its 200-day. Stock was actually down today. On a risk-on day, Netflix down today. So what do we like it against? I continue to like Disney long. I think this is a great pair against Netflix. It's only a couple months ago that Disney broke out of this huge five-year base. We have good support right near the 50 and 200. I think any consolidation is an opportunity to get long here. And again, if we pair these and think about what our P&L looks like, this is long Disney, short Netflix. Again, Disney was the underperformer for much of the last several years. That has really started to change over the last number of months. I like Disney long versus Netflix. I like Baba long versus Amazon. Wow, good stuff there. Chris Rowe, why don't you come on back there? I'm back. Let's trade this. I, I love what he's doing there. He's also putting Disney on there against Netflix because really the driver for Disney's breakout really was Disney+. Plus. Uh, love Baba over Amazon. Baba's breaking out on a two-year consolidation, as you pointed out. It's also 20 times on their e-commerce business, 30 times on their cloud. Makes it a lot cheaper than Amazon. You're not even really valuing Ant Financial, which is $50 billion. We talked about some of the parts earlier. Love it. And on Disney, look... Forget Disney Plus. This studio is just continuing to crush it. Frozen 2 did, you know, it's already over a billion dollars. This is going to be uh, probably their sixth billion dollar franchise. They got Star Wars coming. That's the gift that keeps on giving. Love that trade as well. Yeah, I would just add this on Disney, and I think his charting was really interesting. You know, for five years, you know, you could have sold Disney at 120, and it was a great sale every single time until earlier this year when it broke out. And I think the point he's trying to make is. If it goes back to that 130 breakout level, you just keep buying it there because you might see a new yeah. range established here, especially with the fundamental drivers that seem to be a tailwind for years to come. All right. Good stuff there, guys. Chris, really interesting nice stuff. Presence, All right. I know Bob, Bob, Bob Iger's watching. If Bob Iger's watching. He watches. He's, he's happy. Fan of the show. He is. Bob, hey, call in. I'm going to call in, Joe. We'll make an exception for you. All right, still ahead. Big numbers from Airbnb. We're going to tell you what they mean for the home-sharing company ahead and its highly anticipated market debut. And then Goldman Sachs making a big bet down under at the land of Wanda. Mm. Well, at least an American copy of it. The one food stock they right. see blooming with opportunity. Ooh, I can you guess that? To, even sure. you can the, get that the right. Outback Tim is, We're back I mean, after this. Fantastic. Blooming on you. All right, welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. We are getting new numbers out of Airbnb. Let's get right now to Deirdre Bosa, who's got them. D. Brian, Airbnb touting new tax and regulation stats. It will close out this year, having collected a total of $2 billion in occupancy taxes, and says it has resolved, quote, the majority of its outstanding litigation in U.S. cities. Now, this comes as a startup heads toward an expected 2020 listing and really as regulatory scrutiny builds. In the past, Airbnb has avoided collecting occupancy tax in some cities through legal action. It now says it collects in three of every four listings. Now, meanwhile, online travel agencies like Booking.com, VRBO, and HomeAway, as they have moved into into home sharing, it's unclear if or how they are handling occupancy taxes. We've reached out to them but have not yet heard back. Finally, Brian, as you and the other guys know, Airbnb says it was EBITDA profitable in 2017 and 2018, so it's already got a leg up on those cash-burning unicorns like Uber and Lyft. This regulation piece, though, it will be key to how prospective public market investors view its value. Back to you. 
All right, Deirdre Bosa. Deirdre, thank you very much. Quick comment. Anybody here just eagerly awaiting that Airbnb IPO? Given the recent not-so-successful IPOs of others, will Airbnb do it better? Well, it's, it's hard to know. And maybe Air, Airbnb will have been painted with a brush that it doesn't deserve. I, you know, I, I think the fact that we're going to get some tax numbers, we're going to actually really be able to backtrack into uh, the balance sheet and, more importantly, possibly the income statement and profitability. And, but... but Going into 2020, you have a dynamic where some of these unicorn IPOs have been so poor that I think the expectations on pricing could actually be in the investor's favor. Yeah, and the risk of an Airbnb is like Uber's finding They're out not in the London. Same I mean, literally, you could just have a city council that says you're illegal. You're out. You're, you're done. You're, at, you're finished. It's you know, New York City, you, what it's is the, you have to live in the building to rent out the unit if you want to be on Airbnb. I mean, Airbnb is minuscule in the largest city here in the United States. Guy, yeah, would you rent out your house? To who? You said I could yesterday. You said, "Why don't you?" But stop I'm not it? renting it to I, I, you. I, I offered you to stay as a guest. I didn't want to stay. I just want to stop in. You can do that as well. All right. Up next, okay. a Wall Street food fight. We got four big calls on four big restaurant stocks. We're going to serve up those names coming up. But first, let's take a look at the Kramer Cam. Mm. Je- Jim is talking with the CEO of Robinhood. Be sure to catch that full interview coming up at the top of the hour on what else? Mad Money. We are live at the Nasdaq, and we're back right after this. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Got some more breaking news on Oracle about the C-suite. Josh Lipton, what do you got? So, Brian, on Oracle's conference call, Larry Ellison just making some news here I want to bring you. There are no plans for a second CEO at Oracle. Ellison saying it was an unusual situation that Heard and Katz were a fantastic team, uh, but that the company will focus on strengthening uh, the management team they have in place. Of course, uh, Brian Mark Heard passed away in October. He was known as a tough, talented salesman, somebody at that company who had really strong relationships with uh, the big corporate customers. In many ways, I would argue he was also the face of this company. You know, I interviewed uh, Heard a number of times for this network. When there was news, when it was time to lay out this company's strategy, it was Heard. But Ellison saying there will be no plans for a second CEO. Back to you. All right. There we go. Thank you very much, Josh. All right. Let's move on. Because analysts at Goldman Sachs initiating coverage on a rather big buffet of restaurant stocks. Goldman slapping sells on Darden, the parent company of Olive Garden in Texas Roadhouse, while telling clients you've got to buy Brinker. They own Chili's. And Bloom and Brands, that is the parent company of Outback Steakhouse. And that Outback call got us craving something good. So, Tim Seymour, what is your take on these restaurant calls? Would you own the Bloom and Onion? Well, I, I actually do regularly frequent the Outback. You get a nice, nice frosty mug. That Bloom and Onion is not something I'm taking down. But, but here's what I'll say, and I think this is part of their call, is that, is that casual dining and, and that entire segment has underperformed the quick serve. And, and you can make an argument that you're going to see some resurgence in a couple of these brands. I, I actually think that the entire space is overbought and the valuations don't make sense because well, of the, so- the defense they also of, own of Carrabba's and Fleming Steakhouse. The thesis of the call is delivery is going to get people back there because they're not going to the restaurants as much as they used to. It's 2% decline in, in, in traffic every quarter for, since 2009. Every single quarter. Ten years in a row. Oh, I understand that, but but if you look at the quick serve, they they have that same benefit. And, and look what it's doing for McDonald's. Look what it's doing for, for other places that can slap that delivery on there. So I think it's, it, they can't compete with that. Buying, what about Brinker, Chili's? Blumen, but quickly on BLMN, it's gone from 15 to 24 since the summer. That's a significant move. Valuation is reasonable at best. I'm more inclined to take profits here. All right. Thank you very much. Up next, your final trades.
It is time now for your final trade on a Thursday. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Chris, Chris offered you a partridge and a pear trade into Disney. Some of that was the charts. I like it on fundamentals and re-rating. We've seen that. It continues. There you go. I like China, which means I like Baba. I like it paired against Amazon. Be long Baba here. Do you like it alone, or do you like it only paired against Amazon? We like it every which way. Wow. But loose. Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Nice job. Right turn, Clyde. All right, Dan. Right uh, turn, Clyde. The Starbucks got upgraded today at J.P. Morgan. This is one that had a 20% peak to trough decline for the summer all-time highs. I think it works its way back up there into the new year. Starbucks. You know, that SMH thing you jammed in there mid-show was genius, by the way. I just want you to know that. Thank you. If yeah. nobody but myself caught it, well done. SMDH. I, I will tell you that Eli Lilly is trading well here, Brian. Back to you. Got a little time to work with Guy Adami. You know, last night I jammed you up. Tonight you're looking at me, so you Thank can't you, win. Thank you, Guy Adami. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad starts now. <laughs>